did a Christmas Eve's Eve service back in the back. Had a lot of fun with that. And back into First Chronicles here. Now, if you remember correctly, the first nine chapters of Chronicles was genealogy. Chapter 10 was about Saul. David takes center stage now. David takes center stage for about the next 19 chapters. Now, that's pretty important. David is the main guy here when it comes to the Old Testament of the king of Israel. And so he was anointed as king, and the Lord really used him mightily, a man after God's own heart. But this is what's interesting about Chronicles. Let me ask you this. Okay, feel free to answer. If you're going to write about the life of David, what big events would you include in that life? Name something. Goliath. Goliath. What else? What's the next big event we always talk about with David? Bathsheba. Neither Goliath nor Bathsheba is mentioned in Chronicles. Isn't that fascinating? You're going to write a biography about David and you don't mention Goliath and you don't mention Bathsheba. Now, why is that? Because what you find here in Chronicles... What it comes down to this is 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 1. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord you said, excuse me, and the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd, my people Israel, and be ruler over my people Israel. God wants to focus on David shepherding and ruling Israel. Some of your translations say feeding Israel. God says right here in 1 Chronicles 11, this is my focus, is you're going to be the shepherd and the ruler. Yeah, but what about Goliath? I don't even care about Goliath. That happened before you were king. Have you ever run into believers that the only thing they want to talk about is the glories of the past? There's a guy that I used to minister to, nice guy, a very nice guy, but every time I talked to him, it was all about how crazy on fire he was for Jesus 30 years ago in the 70s. And if I would have met him in the 70s, how impressed I would have been. Okay, but it's not the 70s right now. What are we doing right now for the Lord? So Goliath, yeah, that's in the past. That was amazing, David, but we're not going to focus on that. Well, what about Bathsheba? I mean, come on. What do we always want to do as human beings? Let's always bring up somebody's sin, right? Now Bathsheba, that's done, forgotten, forgiven. Let's move on. Now, there are a couple sins here that he's going to mention, and these sins that are mentioned affect him as the ruler and shepherd of the nation. But like I said, the first two things you think of with David is Goliath, and you think of Bathsheba, and you won't find those mentioned in Chronicles. Because God said, we're not going to rest in the past on the glories that we had, because we're going forward in Christ Jesus. And number two, we're not going to kick you while you're down. The Bathsheba thing, that's been taken care of. Now, but isn't it interesting? The sin may be taken care of, but guess what? You can never get away from this. David's list of his mighty men. These are his top dogs here that he used and served with. Look at verse 41 of chapter 11. Who was the first guy mentioned in verse 41 of chapter 11 of David's mighty men? Uriah the Hittite. Did you know that? David had this group of three guys that were his three guys. But then he had this whole list of mighty men that they give all their exploits to. And Uriah the Hittite was one of his best guys. And what did David do? But it's not mentioned in Chronicles because the Lord says, I don't want you to focus on your sin. I want you to focus on your forgiveness. Same thing still happens today. So two quick points before we give into the message. Make sure you're not walking in the past. The Lord may have done some amazing things with you in the past. And amen to God be the glory. But we press forward in the goal of Jesus Christ. We're always moving forward. Number two, you may have done some really stupid stuff in the past. Okay, isn't that the beauty of grace, mercy, and forgiveness? So let's move on. 
Okay, we've messed up, we've forgiven. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins, so let's move forward now. And that's what you see here with the life of David. So, we're going to focus on those two points. Verse 2, shepherding the people, ruling over the people. And how does he do this? Well, this happens when they're at Hebron. A little bit of background here, a lot of people forget this. When David became king, the kingdom was divided for a brief moment, seven years. One of Saul's sons, Ashibotheth, decided to rule that kingdom. David ruled the kingdom of Judah. And for seven years, it was divided. After seven years, they came together. This is what we're talking about here in verse 11. And David ruled for 33 years over both kingdoms together. So David ruled for a total of 40 years. What was his goal? Verse 2, shepherd, rule. Some of your translations say feed. Feed my people. That has not changed in thousands of years. What did Jesus tell Peter? When Jesus was talking to Peter along the beach, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. This is what we're supposed to do as a church, as a body of Christ, is to give people God's word. It's been so simple for us. We complicate church so much. You guys are here tonight, and what is our goal? We're going to give you an opportunity to worship, an opportunity to fellowship, an opportunity of prayer, an opportunity for service, and we're going to give you teaching. We're going to equip you. Then as you leave this room, you're going to go out and say, okay, what did I learn through the Spirit and that message and that lesson that I can now go into work tonight, tomorrow, and be a light and a witness in all I say and do? Feed the lambs, feed the sheep. We're feeding the sheep in here. And there's a lot of lambs being fed back there. How simple is that? Let's not complicate things. So they come together, and David decides that he needs a capital. So they choose Jerusalem. A lot of us don't remember, but Jerusalem was not always to the Jews. Verse 4, David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Verse 5. Now, in the other translation, excuse me, in the other book, in 2 Samuel, um, the Jebusites start teasing David a little bit, saying, even the blind and lame shall defeat you. It has a very strong city. It was very well defended. So David says, hey, I need somebody to go take this city for me. Verse 6. And whoever takes it gets to be the chief and the captain. So Joab steps up and says, I'll do it. Now, remember, if you get your genealogy down, Joab is David's nephew. Do you remember how Joab went up and did it? There was a water shaft that went into the city. Joab climbed up the water shaft, snuck into the city, and he's the one that led the charge. And that's why Joab became the general and the ruler. Now, the quick teaching point of this is what? The Lord laid something on your heart. He's supposed to get Jerusalem. That's the city God wants to use. Verse 5, you run into opposition. You shall not come into here. Verse 5, nevertheless, David said, okay, and left, right? No. Have you ever noticed how easy we as Christians give up? We just give up so quickly. We have the God of the universe on our side that created the world in six days. We sing the song that nothing is too difficult for you. We sing it. We know the verses. But yet when we run into oppositions, we seem to be the first people to quit. And David, right here, hey, you can't have this city. David says, yeah, I can. If the Lord is with me, who can be against me? And we have a tendency to forget this. We mentioned last week, not to repeat the point, but we mentioned last week about how one of the reasons that Jesus came was to take away the fear of death. And we talked about how if we no longer have a fear of death, how can we have a fear then of bills? How can we have a fear of a work situation? How can we have a fear of this or that? If you don't fear death through what Christ did on the cross, how can you fear anything then? 
But sometimes as believers, we become the biggest scared chickens you've ever seen. But David says, no, that's mine. I'm going to get it. Verse 7, David dwelt in that stronghold. Therefore, they called it the city of David. And he built the city around it from the Milo to the surrounding area. Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David went on and became great. And the Lord of hosts was with him. That's what we had to remember as believers. If God is with you, verse 9, what can stand against you? Absolutely nothing. And we have to remember that this world that we live in is a constant battle and fear. And we have to let faith control us and not fear. We are strong and mighty in the Lord. And there's nothing that can stand in the way of that. And David is a great example. Now, before we get into the list of the mighty men here, does anybody have any quick questions, comments on just the brief introduction to who David is there? They kind of skip all the childhood stuff. They jump right when he's king and say, that's what matters. That's what's going on with Chronicles. Okay. What do we got with the mighty men? Let's talk about a couple of these guys. We're not going to go through all of them. Let's start with verse 12. After him was Elziar, the son of Dodo. I just want to let you know, I think that's an amazing name. Um, Who was one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pasadena. Now, there was the Philistines who were gathered for battle, and there was a piece of ground full of barley, so the people fled from the Philistines. But they stationed themselves in the middle of that field, defended it, and killed the Philistines, so the Lord brought about a great victory. I love Elziar. I've always loved Elziar. His name means God has helped. God has helped. We have a couple different stories of Elziar here. One of them mentioned in 2 Samuel 23 is one of my favorite stories of Elziar. He takes on about 300 Philistines on his own, and he swings the sword so much, the Bible says that his hand became stuck to the sword. He was gripping it so tight that when the battle was over, he couldn't let go of the sword. Now, I love that point because that's how we're supposed to look at God's word. God's word is our sword in the battle. And when we get in the middle of the battle, you should cling to God's word like nothing else. And your hand should be so stuck to it that it never lets go. Scripture should be always on your mind. If I'm dealing with this, I'm dealing with that. Lord, what should I do? Give me focus. Give me direction. Always go back to the Bible and God's word. Let your hand be so stuck to it that it never lets go. What else can we see from Elziar here? Well, they are in this middle of this battle. There's a small group of barley where they're fighting. Verse 13, everybody else runs except David and Elziar. There's something about a man who's willing to stand his ground. And you see this guy, and he stands his ground. God has helped. What does he have to be afraid of? Turn with me real quick, if you will, to Psalm 121. Continuing this theme of not having fear... Continuing this theme of God is my help. I can stand my ground. Psalm 121. I love this psalm. Anybody here tonight going through a difficult time in fear and worry, maybe getting the best of them, Psalm 121, I encourage you, write out a copy of this by hand. Stick this on your fridge. Psalm 121, verse 1. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Once again, if God can create heaven and earth, what problem are you facing that is bigger than creating something out of nothing? Verse 3, He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber, but he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. We talked about that a couple Sundays ago. You can go to bed at night because Dad's watching over you. You don't have to sit there and fear and worry and what if. 
God has you. Verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming from this time forth and even forevermore. We need more Elziars. God has helped. We stand our ground. We fight. We cling to the Bible. We cling to the word. We cling to the sword. We never, ever let go. And that's who we focus on. There's nothing for us to be afraid of. If you're still there in Psalms, just jump back a few Psalms to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Go ahead and start in verse 2. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God and Him who I trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor of the destruction that lies waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not Come near you. There's nothing we need to be afraid of. It's got everything listed there, right? The terror by night. The fear of the unknown. What about arrows? Somebody trying to hurt you, attack you. Verse 6, pestilence, health, destruction. None of that rocks our world. Because we know where we're at in the Lord. We look at Elziar. God has helped. And no matter what little patch of barley we're standing on, as long as we're focused on God and His Word, He's going to get us through. What a beautiful picture that is. What about some of these other mighty men? Let's see what about some of these other guys here. Alrighty. What about verse 15? Now three of the thirty chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam, and the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. So what happens here is David is in this cave. He's kind of surrounded. David was in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David said with a longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of the Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem, and that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I have drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. It's kind of interesting here. These guys kind of remain nameless at this section. Other parts of the Bible, we know who they are. But there's a couple of neat parts here. Number one. It's never about who gets the glory. It's just about serving the king. It's never about who gets the glory. It's about serving the king. That's all that matters. Number two, no one asked them to do this. No one did. David never said, go do it. But they knew the heart of their king so much, they knew what their king would want. And they were willing to do it. See, I noticed the longer you walk with Christ, the more you know the heart of your king. So therefore, when a situation in life pops up, I don't want to sound ultra-spiritual here. It's not that you need to pray about it. It's not that you need to fast about it. You know the heart of the king. He would want me to love that person, so I will love him. He would want me to forgive that person, so I'll forgive him. He would want me to be a witness in that situation, so I will. I know the heart of the king. No matter how difficult it is, these guys snuck through enemy lines to bring back a drink to their king. Some of you right now are faced with some really difficult things. It doesn't matter how hard it is. If you know the heart of your king, you just want to be obedient and do it. So you do it for the king, and guess what the king's going to do? He's going to dump that water out. 
Now, the Bible doesn't say anything, but if you were one of those three guys, wouldn't you be a little ticked? I mean, seriously, you go through enemy lines, you get that offering of the water, you bring it back, you give it to David, and you just can't wait to see his face and his expression. And what does he do? He takes the water and dumps it all over the ground. See, we're not used to this. This is what's called a drink offering in the Bible. And it's supposed to be a picture of Christ being offered up for us as a sacrifice. When you take a drink offering in the Bible and you, would, and you would dump it on the ground, a lot of times it was wine. Wine is a picture of the blood of Christ. And sometimes they'd mix it with oil, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. What you're basically saying is, I'm, I'm giving everything to you. I'm dumping my life out to you. That's why Paul in 2 Timothy said, my life is like a drink offering being poured out. That you truly are giving everything to the Lord. So all of a sudden, nothing's yours anymore. Lord, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care about that possession. I don't care about my pride. I don't care about my glory. I don't care about the bills. I mean, you've got to pay them, but you know what I mean, right? I don't care. It's all about you. So actually, the greatest thing that they could have done with that water offering is to give it right back to God. Because that shows how important the Lord was. I sometimes look at the things I do in my life, and I'm thinking, number one, Sometimes don't we want the name recognition and the glory? Don't we sometimes not know the heart of the king and the king has to tell us what to do? And sometimes do we not want to offer it up to the Lord, but we kind of want to keep it? See, these no-name guys didn't care about the glory. No one had to tell them to do it. They knew the heart of the king. And they knew the best offering was to give it to the Lord. Let's do one more mighty man, and we'll take a break here for a second. Jump down to verse 22. Benaiah was the son of Jehodiah, the son of the valiant man from Kezabah, who had done many deeds. He had killed a two lion-like heroes of Moab. He had also gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian man of great height, five cubits tall. In the Egyptian's hand there was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with the staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah, did, and won a name among three mighty men. Okay, real quick teaching point. If you're ever leading up a Bible study or teaching and you run across a passage like verse 22 and 23, and you're looking at that saying, there's some strange stuff in there. Why are they telling me about lion-like heroes of Moab, killing a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day, and a really tall Egyptian? Stop at that moment and just start looking for symbolism. Just stop and say, okay, Lord, no word is ever put in there without a meaning or merit. So God, what is the symbolism that you're trying to say here? Okay, let's go with the Egyptian first. Egypt in the Bible always represents what? Do you remember? The world. It always represents the world. And guess what? The world is big and nasty. This Egyptian was about seven and a half feet tall. That's a big boy. So you're going into battle, and you're here you are. I'm 5'8". I see somebody seven and a half feet tall. I'm going the other way. The world is big, and it's strong, and it's powerful. And the world wants to tear you down. Never forget that. Okay, what about the next one? What about the people of Moab? Moab's kind of an interesting one. If you remember correctly, Moab was the nation that hired Balaam to take down Israel. And they couldn't get Balaam to curse Israel. So Balaam came up with this great idea. Send your women over to the men of Israel. Seduce them. Seduce them physically and take down Israel from the inside with that seduction. Moab always represents the flesh. 
and the desires of the flesh. And how as men and women, even though we're children of God, we will make really stupid choices because the flesh is strong. The last one, the lion, that's a pretty straightforward one. That always represents Satan. And where does Satan like to get you? In a cold, snowy pit. And when you get to a cold, snowy pit in life, he is going to pounce on you. Because that's what he likes to do. You're already stuck at the bottom of a pit. So you're already feeling bad as it is. It's cold. It's snowy. So you're already feeling bad there. Satan says you're weak. Now's my time to pounce on you. So we have the world that's huge and big. We have Satan who likes to pounce us in the cold, snowy pits. And we have Moab that's the flesh. Aren't those the three things that you and I battle every day? I battle the world, I battle my flesh, and I battle the enemy. Always do. And you know what? You can't get away from them. You can't. So let's say that I'm going to run to the hills. I'm going to become a monk. And I'm going to let go of the world. Right? I just slayed... The seven and a half foot tall Egyptian. I won, right? No, because I can never get away from Moab, the flesh. Can never get away from it. Okay, well, I'm going to now, in the power, in the name of Jesus, you know, I'm going to rebuke Satan, so he's done. Right, but I still live in the Egyptian world. And it's really even difficult for me to go shop at Walmart because of the magazines that are right there. The world is always there. The enemy is always there. The flesh is always there. And that's why this man defeating all three of those is a fascinating picture of believers that we will always be in a battle against the flesh, against the world, against the enemy, as long as we're in this world. His name, Benaiah's name, means Jehovah has built. And I think that's an important name because Elziar's name means God has helped. God helped Elziar win that battle. Well, how in the world am I supposed to defeat Egypt and Moab and the lion? Because Jehovah has built for me a strong foundation in Christ. And so therefore I can walk in that and not walk in my own power, strength, and might. I'm telling you right now, if you want to take on the seven and a half foot Egyptian on your own, you're going to lose. If you want to take on the lion in the snowy pit on your own, you're going to lose. If you want to take on the people of Moab on your own, you're going to lose. But when you allow Jehovah to build the foundation of your life, all of a sudden you can take on all those three things. And that's what that guy represents. These mighty men represent our battle in this world. God helps us. It's not about us getting the glory. We cling to the word. We give everything back to the Lord. And the world and Satan and Moab, the flesh, will throw everything at us. Hey, Lord, through you, your help, through what you've built, I can handle this because, God, you are good. Anybody have any quick questions, comments about any of the mighty men here? Ryan. Yeah, but they can in some of the higher elevation areas that can happen. Yeah. Anybody else have anything? Rose. What did you say, Benaiah? Benaiah name means Jehovah has built. Jehovah has built. Nobody else got anything? Okay, so that kind of ends the story of the mighty men. Chronicles now takes one step back. We're just going to do chapter 12 tonight, and then we're going to call it quits. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now, these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left and hurling stones, shooting arrows with the bow. They were Benjamin, Saul's brethren. This is kind of a big deal. We kind of took one step back in time. Chapter 12, chronologically, happens before chapter 11. 
David is anointed king of Israel. Saul was going downhill fast. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Saul's trying to kill David. David is now running and hiding. And as he's running and hiding, this group of people from the tribe of Benjamin come to him and say, we want to side with you. Remember, Saul's tribe was Benjamin. So this is kind of a big deal that Saul's brethren are coming to join David. And these guys were mighty. Chapter 12, the word mighty is used six times to describe these guys. These guys were trained. Look at this. They could use bows with both right hand and left. They could hurl stones. They could shoot arrows. So they're mighty in that way. Jump ahead to verse 8. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness. Mighty men of valor. Men trained for battle who could handle shield and spear. Whose faces were like the faces of lions. And they were swift as gazelles on the mountains. These guys were trained for battle. They were swift. They were powerful. They were mighty. Okay? They were mighty and strong. Kind of impressive, right? Okay, keep your hand here in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Jump back to 1 Samuel 22 real quick. Let's get a little bit more background about these guys. First Samuel 22. Let's find out who these guys are really like. We know from First Chronicles 12 they were mighty, trained for battle, swift, powerful, etc. Well, what were they really like? First Samuel 22. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they all went down there to him. Verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented, everyone gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Who were the people that came to him? The people that were discontented, the people that were in debt, the people that were in distress. These distressed, discontented people in debt became what? Mighty men. Why did they become mighty men? Because they hung around David. David was a man who sought after God. You can start to see a picture coming. What is the church? What is the body of Christ? It's a bunch of discontented, distressed, and debt people. We get together, and what do we do as these discontented, distressed people? We hang around God. We hang around Jesus. Hopefully we hang around brothers and sisters in the Lord. And all of a sudden, this mess of a group of people becomes mighty. Because that's what the Lord does. Remember a few weeks ago, we read the passage out of 1 Corinthians 1, where it says that not many noble are called, not many wise are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world, the debased things of this world. That's us. Guys, we are this group of outcasts that are nothing, that we just hang around Jesus, and all of a sudden, we're mighty and powerful and strong. You remember what they said about the disciples? When the disciples were turning the world upside down in the book of Acts, they said, these guys are just fishermen that hung out with Jesus. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. We're just a bunch of nothings that hang out with Jesus, and all of a sudden, through Him... Man, we become mighty. Ephesians 1 says this, verse 19. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in Him. This is the same mighty, there's our word, same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. So basically what uh, Paul's saying here in Ephesians is the power of God that raised Christ from the dead is the power that He's now placed in you. 
So you are discontented, distressed, in debt, foolish, unwise, fill in the blank, and all of a sudden now you're mighty in the Lord. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good thing. Now what are we going to do with this now being mighty in the Lord, right? Well, now we're going to be just serving the king. Just like these mighty men served David faithfully through battles, through wars, through ups, through downs, that's what we're supposed to do while we serve our king. You're going to have great moments of victory as a believer. There's no doubt about it. But you're going to have moments of, why did I sign up for this? But you've got to keep your focus on the prize. We keep moving forward. And just like Chronicles doesn't mention Goliath, we don't focus on our glories in the past. We press forward in the goal of Jesus Christ. Chronicles doesn't focus on Bathsheba. Okay, yeah, the sin was already taken care of. We don't need to keep bringing that point up again and again and again. We're moving forward in Christ. You're a new creation in the Lord. So you made some choices. You did some things you shouldn't have. That's sin. God forgives. God forgets. We move on. That's the beauty of grace and mercy. These mighty, valuable, powerful men at one time were a bunch of weaklings and nothing that were the scraps of society. And David took care of them, brought them in, took care of them, and now they're a powerful army. Man, I'm telling you right now, just look around the church. This is a powerful army in the Lord. Because it's the Holy Spirit moving and working in us, and it has nothing to do with us. And that's what we've got to remember in all ways and all things. Anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything before we close up? All right. Next week, we're going to get into 1 Chronicles 13, and we're going to kind of continue here. Now, it doesn't mean that Chronicles does not mention problems that David has. It mentions them. But the problems that are mentioned are usually the problems that affected the nation as a ruler and as a king, not necessarily the personal things that he went through. So I just want to encourage you tonight, as we get ready to end 2015, you are a mighty man or woman of valor in the Lord because of what God has done for you. Not based on your past, not based on your past choices, but based on right now, he wants to make you a new creation in Christ. Walk in that grace, walk in that mercy, and move forward in the Lord, because that's what the Lord wants to do. And be excited for what God has planned in store, because I can't wait to see. I tell you, grab one of those sheets, 40 days of praying and fasting on the vision for you as an individual, also for the church. Grab one of those, see what you think, pray over it. Don't forget New Year's Year's Eve event tomorrow, starting at 6 um, hope you can make it out for that and be blessed. All right, any final questions, comments? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, good to be here this evening. And Lord, as we just finished the year, um, what an exciting year it was just to know that people came to know you. And Lord, we pray for your return. But at the same time, we know the longer you wait, the more opportunity we have to make a difference in a dying world. Lord, help us to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And all that we say and all that we do, help us every day to die to ourselves. Because it's not about us, it's about Jesus, Lord. Lord, it's not about us, it's about the message. And help us to look forward in you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, we have a moment of prayer up here. If anybody's got anything they want to pray over, come on up. And uh, you guys have a good week and God bless.